Welcome to another episode of the Dentology Podcast, where we discuss the business of dentistry. In this podcast series, we'll be discussing all the non-clinical aspects of dentistry, from goodwill values, finance, marketing, how to buy and sell a dental practice mindset, through to where you can invest your money in team management issues. My name is Andy Acton, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris Trevens. Let's jump straight into it. So welcome to our latest episode of Dentology, the business of dentistry podcast. And today we're joined by Tom Coates, and Tom is the managing director of FTA Law. Uh, full disclosure, both Chris and I are both um, shareholders of FTA Law. We, we are, are we working are. together, uh, but we're not involved operationally. That's Tom's domain and he works with his team. So welcome, Tom. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Nice yeah. to see you. And, uh, Unusually through a screen as opposed to sitting around the table having a chat. Yep, yep, yep. Yes. So you've yep, got the yep, blind down. Is it sunny? Yeah. It is. It's lovely up north. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice, very nice. Look at that. You do get the sun from time to time, despite those stories we get told of it being grim up north. The sun shines yeah, on the righteous. That's absolutely exactly. Yeah. Before we get into the um, the legal aspects in terms of kind of shifting from being an associate to a practice owner, which is kind of an area of your your specialty, um, what's your what's your background? Kind of, you know, how did you get, choose to become a solicitor? How did you get into it? What was your pathway through to where you are now? Uh, yeah, I mean, th- uh, thinking back, uh, I think my decision to be a solicitor was, uh, that, that was quite a young age. I think it, whilst I was at school, I think I always knew that's what I wanted to do uh, <laughs> because I was always decent at, at the sort of the, the written word type. I thought you were going to say arguing. I was going to say, were you argumentative? <laughs> is what I was gonna say. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was good at that as well. Um, so at school, I made that decision and then usual path, law degree, law school, that sort of thing training contract I trained at I actually trained at a high street firm uh, in Hull of all places um, nice uh, the, yeah the, basically it's still hard to get a training contract in the legal mm. profession was it when um, you qualified yeah it's harder now yeah. but it was hard back then um, I, I remember writing two three hundred letters that sort of Flip. thing to get a wow. foot in the door offer um, and you know you just need that one interview and I went where the training contract was yeah. and there probably were um, letters there probably weren't emails or stuff there, were, there weren't yeah you know cool flip yeah absolutely yeah yeah I remember uh, I remember the, all the rejection letters coming yeah. in through the door on a daily basis and that did you cheat Tom and photocopy that. one and then just sign them all or did you sign individual do 300 individual letters no they, I tried to put some level of personalisation yeah. into every letter I sent as well yeah. Uh, that, I mean, to be honest, it's one of my gripes because I'm getting grouchy as I get older. That, that, that we, we, st- we still interview people and say, oh, "How many firms have you applied to?" So, oh, two. Um, I've done a, I've done a couple of online applications. Well, like, yeah. oh, you know, so, when you wrote your, yeah, when you wrote or continue to write letters, was there a point where you thought, "Oh, bugger it, this is just too hard. I'll go and do something else," or were you so convinced in yourself that you you would be a solicitor? You just kept going. It was just relentless. I think. I think in the interest of probably full disclosure, I, I didn't work as hard at university as I could or should have done. Um, so um, I could have been in a better position when I came out of university because some people were there with all their fees paid by a big law firm and they walked straight into training contracts because they, they put the graft in at an early right. stage. So I was always a little bit on the back foot in that regard because I'd had a little bit too much fun at university. Um, but I stuck at it um, and I think I'd got to a point where I'd said I'd give it another six months because obviously you need to, you know, you've, you've been left behind, your friends are starting on their careers, you want to get started in the world of the world mm. of uh, 
build your mm. career. But thankfully, a couple of things came through, and uh, you, you grab the yeah. opportunities when they Did come you along. have? Was there any family family background at all in in the law? Were there people just able to kind of support you within the family circle? No, the only the only person who who, uh, who did sort sort of with the law was my grandfather. He was a policeman. Right. Um, he, he was quite high up in West Yorkshire Police. Um, he was the chief superintendent, so he knew a lot of solicitors and lawyers and that sort right. of thing. Uh, he he did know some people where I managed to get some work experience and right. that sort of thing. But of course, that was all very much on the criminal side, yeah. uh, which is still very interesting, actually, really interesting area of law. But it just uh, it there's no money in it, unfortunately. Uh, right, that's interesting. Yeah, I suppose a lot of it's just legally aided, isn't it? It is. Yeah, that's right. You, know, you speak to any anybody who does cri- pra- has a criminal law practice on the solicitor yeah. level, they usually say, don't do it, don't go into it. But I, I would imagine it's very rewarding. Yeah, I mean, it's more of a vocation as opposed to commerce, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. That's so, yeah, so you've got yourself your training contact. You're over in the, the, the delights of Hull. Yes, uh, I never made the move to live in Hull. I commuted from uh, from Doncaster, which was quite a bit yeah. of a trek, actually. It was a good 60, 70 miles a day. Wow. Oh, oh, oh. So I did that for two and a bit years, got a good training. Always wanted to be in Leeds. Um, uh, Le- Leeds is the one of the main legal centres of the north. So as soon as I could, I moved to a firm in Leeds. And um, still is as well, as a isn't it? It's still a, it's still a big yeah, hub. Yeah. yeah. Um, always wanted to do corporate. I realised that as I was doing my... Uh, uh, my, my degree and my, my period at law school that I wanted to do something along the commercial side mm-hmm. of things. Corporate, it, it, basically what you mean by that is buying and selling businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I always enjoyed that aspect of it as a trainee. So m- moved to Leeds to specialise in that. And then uh, the big recession hit in 2000. 2000 yeah, I remember mean, you saying that. Excellent timing. Excellent yeah. timing. Yes. Do you know, I nearly moved to London down your neck of the woods around that time. Um, I had three interviews with a really nice firm right in the middle of May. Oh, very nice. Uh, and they kept saying, oh, you know, we'd like to take you, but we're just not sure how this financial crisis is going to pan out and all the rest of it. And as we know, it panned out pretty badly. Mm. So that never went anywhere. But that's that's one of the opportunities that, that uh, never went anywhere. Mm. But I look back on thing, I wonder where that had a turn. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so the, 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 the recession hit, and at that time... Um, I had one dentist client. Um, <laughs> You've always got to start with the, the first of anything, haven't you? Yeah, I had one dentist client when my practice completely died died out, and I ended up moving to a firm that specialised exclusively in acting for dentists, or almost exclusively in acting for dentists and, and healthcare. Oh. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Did, did wow. you tell him you only had one case? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that was to be honest. There wasn't any expectation of bringing a client, to yeah. be honest. It, it, it was more a case of the client who I had, and who remains a client as well, um, he, uh, he he had some work that could come with me, but it was more the fact that he was quite well known. Brilliant. He did open a few doors in that regard. But once again, it's about taking those opportunities Absolutely. And, and running with But then obviously there's, there's something special about you beyond being a solicitor though, because obviously you weren't content with just practicing law and being a solicitor and the technicalities of that. You then had this urge to go and set up your own law firm as well. Yeah, I think, I think particularly in the, those early stages of my career, that first couple of years when I was a newly qualified solicitor, I do look back with some sympathy on the, on the, person who was actually tasked with managing me at that stage 
um, because I, I wasn't particularly great at, at taking instruction and that sort of thing. Um, and I did always have some quite strong views about the way legal services should be offered. Um, and it was only at a latter stage in my career, the last four or five years, where the opportunity arose to be able to put that into practice. Hmm. And do you enjoy business more than being a solicitor or is it the other way around? Because I think about dentists and, and dentists are technicians, aren't they? Yeah, they, they spend, not, not, not dissimilar to solicitors, they spend five years at dental school and they come out as, as well-qualified clinicians in, in a technical uh, discipline. The, for many, crossing over and then becoming a principal and a business owner and dealing with leadership and management and sales and marketing and operations and people, blah, yeah, blah, blah. Everything else. They find that quite daunting and challenging. Did, were you were you kind of immediately up for that, or was there a period of kind of uh, getting yourself from being that that technician on the legal side to then running a business? Yeah, I think I think in, in the early stages it was just all about um, being a lot being a solicitor, you know, doing the actual legal work and, and handling clients and completing deals and all this sort of thing. Um, and it was only really from progression in law firms that was on the back of working hard at, at doing mm. the, the lawyering, as I call it. It, it, it was it was only for, through working hard on that that you get given the opportunity to have more responsibility mm. on the managerial side. Um, and to be quite honest, to answer your question about which do I enjoy more, I mean, I'm trained to be a solicitor. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that a lot of lawyers um, don't recognise in themselves, that actually, first and foremost, you've spent years and years of training to, to, to work on client matters and the, the side of the profession that, that is, is, is to do with management and that sort of thing is sometimes neglected. Mm. Um, I enjoy both. Um, I think acting for clients has become more challenging. I think people are more switched on. People are far more willing to challenge what their lawyers tell mm. them, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, the management side I, I find more rewarding these days, put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And just as a general point, um, through life, people tend not to have that many interactions with solicitors. You know, know, if if you're in business, perhaps more so, but generally in life you don't. Does that (laughs) lack of engagement with solicitors... caught. Well, yeah, but but it is, isn't it? It's it's, it's kind of, you know... Or divorce. I'm not saying you're you're scary or anything, but do people, Mm. when they have those first interactions with you as a solicitor, um, does it... Do you kind of have to warm them up to the fact that you are just a nice bloke, you are an ordinary person, you just got a different set of skills, or, or is there is is it can it be a bit awkward in the early days when you first get a new client? I think the biggest worry for most people when they speak to a solicitor is they can't get away from the fact that as soon as the solicitor picks the phone up, it's going to cost mm, them. Yeah, um, there is there is often a reluctance for people to speak mm. to us purely because they think it's going to be expensive even to pick the phone up and just have an initial chat. I've no idea what this is costing um, us today, by the way. I've, exactly. I've, I've, yeah, exactly. I'm just watching the counter yeah. in the background. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unit, units of six minutes. Yeah. And don't don't yeah. let's just get thinking time as well, Tom. Yeah, 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 so, yeah thinking time. Mm, let me just think. Oh, that's six minutes. <laughs> yeah. On an hourly rate, of course, you know, you could just pick the phone up to your solicitor and say hello and put the phone down again and that's six, <laughs> that's six minutes. So you might as well just keep going for six minutes. Hi, how yeah. you doing? What's the weather like? <laughs> so, so, so that's a concern, yeah. is it? Engaging with the sisters, I think it's going to be expensive. I think, I think that's 
I think that's the biggest barrier. Is that is you know we we try to push all the time. We put we put a lot of time into people on a no no obligation no cost basis um, to try and build that relationship with them. Well, that's the first hurdle to get over. And I think it, to generalise, it's probably a generational thing. I think perhaps the older generation um, are more um, open to, to to accept what the solicitor advises. Where I think the younger generation is more prepared to challenge. Right. Um, what it's probably because they've looked think, at it on Google yeah. or something. You know, they've they've searched it right. on the web and yeah. want to make sure that you're yeah. using the right precedent right. or they're using an old precedent. Yeah. You know, I think I think you know you look at all the traditional professions, even at, well, even doctors, which you know none of us would want to call a, hold ourselves out as being doctors. That's something that nobody can do unless you've been trained to do it. But doctors will get challenged all the time from people who've looked it up on Google mm. and have self-diagnosed. So if it's happening to doctors, it's definitely going to happen to lawyers and mm. accountants, the profession. Mm. And how is it changing? I mean, technology, stuff like that, and interactions, obviously through COVID, more Zoom in, I'm assuming. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the, the COVID thing's been very interesting. Um, in the When the first lockdown happened, as with most professions, everything pivoted towards home working. Um, and you know, you read the headlines. It's the death of the office. It's you know, every, this is the future. All the rest of it. And I think as time went on, we we sounded out more people in the profession. We sounded out some bigger firms, a lot bigger firms than us. Um, and as more time went on, the more the penny started to drop. Actually, um, you need to be in the office uh, at least for some of the time. Um, you can't supervise from home. Yes, you can check work. You can check work to see if it's legally correct or grammatically correct. But supervision goes a long way beyond that. And supervision, obviously, is one of a massive issue in law firms. Uh, it's high risk, highly regulated. Professional insurance, uh, professional indemnity insurance is stupidly expensive, as you know. Mm. Um, and supervision is a massive, massive challenge. So thankfully, the pendulum has swung mm. back in that regard. And I think firms now are moving towards... What, what I always say we were doing anyway, where you can work from home, we have a home working policy, we all have a home working policy, yeah. but this role does require some level of office presence. And outside of just the technicalities of supervision, which is, I, I guess, got the umbrella of regulation that sits over it, um, did you see any loss of, of culture and team bonding and team working? Has that got better as a result of everybody coming back in? Massively, yeah. I think that was, that was the thing I... I disliked the most obviously the supervision comes with its concerns but the loss of culture was mm. um staggering. i think we saw the same uh, we, didn't we did yeah. yeah you have to put things in place to bring it back don't yeah you? yeah we we had people who joined us um during the middle of the pandemic so I, I i can't imagine what it's like for somebody joining a business where you don't ever actually physically meet your colleagues you've only met them over mm. zoom what a weird time to join join a business so yeah, that that was really hard. But we've got it back. We moved offices um, for that reason. You know, we 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 booked the trend in the a lot of people consolidated their office space and downsized. Pre-pandemic, we were probably in offices that were too small for our needs. Um, so we we actually moved to bigger offices, as mm. you know. Um, so we had a desk for everybody in really nice um, surroundings for them to return to, and it give us a really nice springboard mm. to move forward and interestingly i know that there's a there's a zoom room in the office as well i'd have thought if you yeah. just said to somebody perhaps only three years ago i think we need a zoom room mm. 
I think people would have thought you were nuts. You probably wouldn't have known what it was. No. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, the courts are still doing uh, remote hearings and that sort of mm. thing. Um, so that that room is getting ever more mm. use, actually, particularly by our litigation team with the court hearings and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and that isn't going to change. I don't think, I, I don't see no. that returning. What are you finding with calls? I mean, I find it quite interesting. The vast majority of people that I talk to now want a, a FaceTime or a Zoom or a Teams yeah. or a GoToMeeting, which before, I, it always makes me think about of, you, you might remember because you're sort of nearly old enough. You might not remember. Do you remember the TV show Tomorrow's World? Oh yeah, yeah. And, and they used to, you know, gadgets of the future, video, phone. and video, video phone. Phone. and, and everyone thing. used to go, ah, don't talk nonsense. But now it sort of is here, isn't it? Everyone's, yeah. you know, it's almost like if you're going to do a phone call, you're a bit like a poor representative, and uh, are you really ugly, so you don't want to be seen on screen? <laughs> I, I find it really bizarre. Uh, should we do a Zoom? Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> And I think just just on the point you mentioned, Chris, about other changes in the in the profession, I think the the, the big one um, is is a greater degree of automation, mm-hmm. and it's actually coming down from the banking sector. Um, your big massive banks are ever more automating due diligence mm-hmm. and the due diligence process, um, and it's frightening to some extent the level of how people are being replaced by. Uh, algorithms and processes and that sort of thing and that will find its way it's already finding its way Mm. i must admit i saw something i read an article it must have been pre-covid and whether it's from america probably is or something but they were saying that a lot of um simple contracts have been sort of effectively written by ai really because it's saying you know once once you've learned and you keep, yeah. as, you, as you were saying, Tom, once the algorithm starts working, it starts mm. refining it, doesn't it? Mm. Which is, is, a, is a real challenge for everybody. Really. I suppose in some ways, we spoke to um, Steve Pratt, who, who worked for Lloyds Bank for 43 years, and he was talking about his history. And he said that when he first started, the branch he worked in had 95 people mm. in it. And he said that branch is still open today and it's got five people. But it, I don't yeah. think it means that 90 jobs have been lost through technology. I think those people work and deliver those services, but through other departments. But I think as technology comes in and you lose a traditional job, new jobs get created. So I think it's just, I think it's more of the changing style mm. of work as opposed to as humans we're being made redundant to, to technology. I think just the things we do change but mm. like you say as you get a bit older and you get used to working in a traditional way mm. it's quite daunting because there seems to be a lot of technology yeah. that's doing things that yeah, traditionally would have been done from sitting behind a desk i must admit all i, I thought was right. cheaper christmas do <laughs> <laughs> i think i think you're absolutely right i think the, the the where it will provide a challenge in the legal profession is it will it will take up the roles which have historically been the, the, the foot in the door of the law firm, yeah. mm. um, and, and you wonder where those those relatively menial or, or, or admin based uh, people are, are going to how they're going to get in in future. Mm. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's, it, there will be benefits and challenges. Absolutely. Mm. So the the podcast is the business of dentistry. So it's, it's your story is, is is great. One of the things that we try to do is deliver a little bit of value to people listening, and the majority of people are, are from the world of dentistry. So, could you just perhaps just walk us through those kind of critical hoops to jump through? If you were 
um, from a legal point of view, if you're looking to buy a dental practice, what does that look like in terms of that pathway? Because at the moment, as, as we know from our, our, our day jobs, there's, there's lots and lots of associates looking to buy and own dental practices. But for most, they only ever go through that process once in their, in their career. Mm. So what, what, what does it look like? What are the things that, that have to happen from a legal point of view? I think the, the first thing, obviously, they've got to find themselves a practice. And, and as, as you know, the, the market mm. is very, very competitive um, and remains so. So finding a practice and agreeing a price through bro- brokers and, and such like. Um, then you need a solicitor, so you instruct a solicitor. The first thing is to make sure that your solicitor actually has some experience in acting for dentists and dental do you, practice owners. Tom, do you still yeah. come across uh, um, buyers and sellers who you know appoint someone who has absolutely no idea about dentistry? Does it still happen? It does. It does. We, we you know, at any one time we've got fifty or sixty ongoing transactions. Um, and there will always be a handful of those wow. which have on, on on the other side somebody who who I'm not going to say doesn't know what they're doing, but somebody who um, uh, it's not their primary yeah. specialism. Put it that way. Um, you know, it, it, it's never ideal if you go to a firm where oh, they bought my house for yeah. me or they did my will for me or this that and the other. It might have been the case twenty or thirty years ago when the most valuable asset was the, the bricks and mortar. Yeah. But there's so many specialist aspects to it now mm. NHS contracts, QC, compliance, all this sort of stuff, that it, it, it would be disrespectful of us to say that these people won't do a good mm. job, but it, what it probably will mean is it will take longer and cost mm. more. I, say, I think it's a false economy, more. isn't it? I, I yes, sort of say to right. people, the, the, the risk is it's not so much of what... Um, is in the contract it's what's not in the contract <laughs> i said because if if your advisor doesn't know what should be in a contract then the answer is it might not appear and i said you that's the, you won't know that until a mm. point comes yeah. when you might want to rely on something that wasn't in there <laughs> because that person yeah. didn't know to put it in if that makes yeah. sense yeah that's absolutely right absolutely right you know to be quite honest, we probably come across the same five solicitors <laughs> on 90% of the dental practice sales and purchases that we do. So it's a relatively small niche with a small number of specialist firms doing yeah. it. But one thing you do know is that whilst the sale and purchase of, of, of any business, be it a dental practice or anything else, there is always a contentious mm. element to it because each lawyer is trying to get the best result for their yeah. client. What you do know is, at least if the lawyer on the other side has expertise, you know with a reasonable degree of certainty there's not going to be any huge errors in that Mm -hmm. contract. Whereas if you've got somebody on the other side who doesn't, it's actually a lot more high pressure because you know that effectively, to some extent, you're doing the work for both sides. Right, yeah. Um, Because nobody wants a dispute at the end Mm. of the day. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 economy. So that start point of getting a solicitor that understands dentistry, I guess at least it sets yeah. you up on the right path. Yes, absolutely. And then I think um, obviously finance, um, as I understand it, there's still a lot of banks uh, happy to lend to dentists yeah. and aspiring. Yeah, very more, fortunate. Yeah, more and more appear. Yeah, yeah, and you know that that's that's ultimately why I ended up doing this because my my. My practice, uh, as I said, in, at the start of the first recession, the banks weren't lending for any other transactional type mm. work. There was no mergers and acquisitions type work going on at all. 
but it remained a green light for the banks on the healthcare side. Yeah. Um, and that's why I ended up doing it. Um, so obviously access to finance, that sort of thing, how that's going to look. Um, then there's a due diligence process that the lawyers will need to do. That, to some extent, is more arduous for sellers because they're the ones who've got to get all the paperwork together mm. and um, it's a big paper chase, particularly if they're not organised. Buyers' lawyers need to review that. Um, Just on the due diligence or, side of things, um, I always take the view that if somebody can get ahead of themselves and start assembling that bundle before they start on the sales process or as they go into it, they can knock a significant amount of time off the transaction, can't they? Because it seems that that due diligence process can take like eight, ten mm. weeks. Whereas if somebody could deliver all that content to you within the first couple of weeks of the transaction, then there's an immediate yeah. benefit of weeks off the transaction time, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah, there's, um, this, it's where the most time is lost, put it that mm. way. Uh, and whilst most buyers' solicitors will reserve the right to uh, raise their own set of inquiries. Mm. They're much of a muchness, to be honest. Uh, I must admit, I always found that a bit weird that there's not like almost a, a standard way it works. I can remember when we were talking to you about, is there a way in this? Oh, the thing is, everybody asks for the same thing, but sometimes they'll ask for it in a different order. <laughs> I can remember, do, do you remember once you were telling us that someone had actually, you'd sent something and then they refused it because it wasn't in the order that they wanted it, so then they you had to redo it. I can't remember now. It was someone like it wasn't in the right numbering or something. It's like, oh, yeah, really? There was that. That happens quite a lot. Where I mean, you don't, as I say, you don't tend to get it with those firms who we're dealing with all the time. They're relatively laid back about it, but sometimes you will get a, a pompous bias slitter through who says, no, 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 no. Even, even though it's the same questions, they're not in the correct order. Wow. Um, we, we did also have the one where. Somebody sent a, a PDF document to a solicitor on the other side, uh, and, and he replied and said, um, "You need to resend this because it's upside down." <laughs> there's a bit of software. There's a bit of software that can look after that. <laughs> yeah, but well, we, we offered one better than that. Print it off and turn it round. <laughs> 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 brilliant brilliant but do you remember there was that firm sorry Tom sort of batting on there. do you remember there was that firm that you know as much as I know who used to dictate to his secretary who would then send you emails which was which is always quite entertaining because they were always a couple of days behind everything exactly yeah and that still happens and you get, no, and really? get phone calls you get the phone calls from the secretary as well Mr. Senso is on the line seriously <laughs> Wow. <laughs> Welcome, Don't we all wish we had a secretary? Welcome to 1985. <laughs> yes, just just yeah. on the timings of things, Tom. Um, uh, yeah, we, 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 we know. We, we would love transactions to go through in three or four months. Sadly, they're typically six, seven months, something like that, possibly pushing out to eight <clears> months. <throat> Do you find there's a challenge in keeping your clients motivated through the process? Because... There aren't many things you do in your life where you have to stay focused on it for that long. You know, if you're buying, uh, you know, or if, you, if, if you go shopping at the Sainsbury's, it's pretty quick. Yeah, even if you buy a car, it's pretty quick. Uh, okay, a house might stretch to a few months. Marriage. But, but, yeah, but, but nothing, nothing kind of gets into this territory. So is there, a, is there a challenge in trying to keep the client kind of on board and motivated and doing all the things they, that they need to do? So it doesn't just kind of fizzle out? I think... With, with the time pressures aspect of it, what we always say to clients is, ultimately, the buyer dictates the time scale. Mm. 
because the deal won't happen until the buyer is satisfied with all their due diligence and that the property stuff is as it should be and that they've got their money and their bank are happy and all the rest of it. So more often than not, the buyer will dictate the timescale. The challenge actually is keeping, when we act for sellers, is keeping sellers motivated and with it right. because they've made the decision they want to sell. They just want their money and they want mm. to go because they've made that decision and that switch has been flicked in their head uh, and they want to act. Mm. Uh, but buyers don't tend to be as uh, on it in terms of we really, really got, got to push this down. Yeah, every now and again you get genuine commercial reasons why there is the buyer has a very strict timescale that needs to be adhered to. Um, we don't tend to find the buyers are the ones losing the motivation and that sort of thing. We tend to find that with the sellers. Um, I mean, with buyers, we obviously if we know there's going to be a change in the budget where things people mm. are going to be impacted, that can really um, throw a spanner in the works and that sort of thing in terms of managing expectations. Um, but no, the buyers have made that decision and they've got their eyes on the prize. We tend to mm. find. And so it's, it's, I think it's a bit like sellers, I suppose, in freight tamer associates, isn't it? I remember uh, what sometimes happens is they get an offer, they get the deposit paid, and they're like, "Well, I'm done." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, 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 you've got to do quite a lot now, if only just to yeah. keep working until yeah. the time it's completed. But yeah. what we say to me, it's so important yeah. they keep their, their, you know, foot on the gas to make sure that the person ends up taking over the practice. What they thought they were buying. That they, that they made their offer on, not a watered down yeah. version because you've taken it easy for mm. the last six months. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, we do see those horror stories where, the UDA performance or, yeah. or, or, or turnover in general just takes a nosedive the moment they yeah. need to sell it. Yeah. You, you've been in this game for quite a while. Has the has the profile of buyers changed over the years, back from when you started to where we are now? Is there a, a, an evolution of what buyers look like or has it been fairly steady and consistent? I think that there are far more... With every passing year, we see more and more first-time buyers. Right. Um, looking to get their feet, feet, foot on the ladder mm -hmm. of practice ownership. And I think that's only been uh, reinforced by what's happened over the last couple mm -hmm. of years. I think that's, that's, that's doubled down on that now, that most of the people are wanting to own a practice. There's not, I don't think there's as much corporate activity as there previously was. I mean, I remember when I first came into it, you know, you'd got, you got my dentist buying up practices left, right, and centre. Oasis, who, who, or what were Oasis? Numerous other corporates. Yeah, there's still corporates out there, and they are still active and competitive in terms of uh, what they want. And there are aspiring corporates and small corporates and this sort of thing. But primarily, I would say is it, it, sometimes you speak to people who say, "Oh, you know, the corporates are just buying up everything." I don't think it's ever been the case. Mm. I think there's no. We agree. We agree. Um, bedrock of first-time buyers mm -hmm. who are wanting to get it, and and the other difference in the profile, I'd say, is the buyers tend to be more switched on than they used to. Right. Is that do you mean more business savvy as opposed to just pure pure dentists? I wonder it's because they're borrowing yes. more money as well. I mean, in a way, aren't they? You know, if you Bigger go risk. back to, uh, yeah. you know, when you started, Tom, the prices weren't anywhere mm -hmm. near where they are now. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder. I mean, we were saying, weren't we, that sometimes we find buyers uh, they get very stressed just because they're borrowing a big amount of money. You know, it's just, we've had a cases, I think, you know, where, where the size of the loan, they just can't cope with it. So they've, they've not even bothered yeah. going forward. They've had their offer accepted, paid the deposit, got their million pound loan approved and then withdrawn because <laughs> they said they yeah. couldn't cope with the stress of that, that type of facility. 
So I yeah. wonder if that's in there as well. Could be. I think it could be. I think I think the profession itself, and I know we've done activities like this to 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 help with what I would always call the business of dentistry. Mm. Um, you know, the legal aspects, the finance aspects, management, um, team type stuff, that sort of thing. I think there's a lot of people now um, really marketing their services and the specialist nature of the profession to, to them. And I think there are a lot more, uh, buyers are a lot more um, averse to taking advantage of that mm. now. They will, they, will, they will spend the money to make sure that they have the proper thing mm -hmm. in place. We're fairly early into to 2022 and, and this year there'll be, you know, a few hundred people buying or, or selling a dental practice. From, from where you're sitting, are there things that a buyer or a seller could be doing now in preparation for buying or selling, mm. even if it still feels like it's some way off? Because we're saying about those those timelines being quite extended. Are, are things that, that they can be doing to, to benefit themselves and, and shorten that shorten that time frame? Yeah, I think there are always certain things that we come across on a practice sale or purchase where you think, well, if that had been identified earlier, mm. it's going mm. to save some time further down the line. So, you know, if you've got, if you've got, if you're occupying under a lease um, and there's only a few years left on it, uh, a buyer is going to expect a longer term mm. lease, 10 to 15 years being the standard, start having the discussions with your landlord to make sure that actually they are agreeable to that. Um, you don't need to rubber stamp anything, but just get an agreement in principle to it. Um, if your staff haven't got employment contracts, um, make sure that your staff have all got the proper contracts, that your associates are engaged on properly drafted associate agreements, because a buyer is going to expect to have legally binding restrictive covenants in place. Mm. So all this sort of stuff. And I guess doing something buyers. like that now means it, you're not sweating, it's not awkward, you're not into a sale process and, you, and you're trying to negotiate these contracts almost as part of a bigger picture. You can do it now in the round of business mm. as opposed to it be part Definitely. of that process. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. I think a lot, a lot of it's obvious, really. You know, if you were buying it, um, what's going to what would cause an issue if you were buying it? Yeah, obviously, UDA performance being the big one. Um, anybody looking to sell this year would be saying to them, "Well, any practice we're looking to buy or advising clients on purchases." It's the first thing we look at, you know, have they, have they complied with the COVID mm. stuff and have they hit the targets and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot that they can be doing. Mm. That's good. Um, we, we always ask our guests at the end a, a couple of questions. But before we get to that, without breaching any confidence, <laughs> have you got any like, horror stories? Have you got anything like that was absolutely horrible that went on? Go on. There's got to be some dirt in there yeah, somewhere, isn't yeah. there? Horror if it was vaguely like no. rude as well, no, no, certainly not. <laughs> well, I can't, no, I can't. I can't think of any rude ones to be honest. Not not ones that were our clients. So the ones that you'd know about anyway. <laughs> um, ones, ones that I'll take. I can not so much a horror story, but something that's becoming ever more of an issue on deals that we're doing at the moment, um, or have done over the last few years. Is there's a lot of people falling out over what we call completion accounts. Mm -hmm. right. um, so if you sell a practice or buy a practice and you do it through a limited company, so you buy and sell the shares in a company rather than buying fixtures, fittings, goodwill. So those are the two ways you can do it, as you know. Um, Post-completion on a company acquisition, there's always a process called completion accounts to be gone through. And if that process is not supported by really good quality accountants who know what they're doing on both sides, 
they can end up in dispute and it's happening more and more often. Oh, really? Um, so, yeah, it's something where, and I've spoke to other law firms about it as well and other solicitors and they're encountering the same thing that um, more and more disputes about the numbers post-completion is something oh, that's that interesting. Uh, is hmm. becoming an issue. Is there in, so, anything to do, Tom, with the, uh, I'm trying to say this very diplomatically, because on some of the accounts that we see, they aren't specialists and they're just almost like glorified bookkeepers. So therefore, anything like a limited company probably with a completion statement is maybe a little step too far for them. Is, is Would that be sort of where where you're coming from, really, of get a decent accountant? <laughs> I think that's right. You need you need an accountant who has what, what we would call transactional experience, mm-hmm. um, no disrespect to the, the person who's done the annual accounts for the last 20 years. I'm sure that that's, uh, uh, they've done a cracking mm. job at doing that. But the process that needs to be followed through on a company acquisition or sale is, is vastly mm. different to that. Um, when you think about it with a company, you will always have a chunk of money sat there mm. in the company bank account. Yeah. You know, if there's £200,000 worth of cash in mm. there, the seller's going to want that out in the most tax-efficient mm. way possible. Um, so they'd like to leave it in and then get the buyer to yeah. pay extra. Yeah, I wonder, I wonder, yeah, I wonder whether some of it is accountants yeah. is an old profession and people tend not to change their accountant. And dentists have only been allowed to incorporate relatively recently. So if you had a, a, a book of dental clients, they would have all been sole traders or mm. partners. And then incorporation became quite popular over the yeah, last 10, possible. 12 years. So perhaps they've ended up yeah. in this, this category of having more incorporated clients. Mm but never really actually had mm. an incorporated client base. And obviously a limited company operates and behaves very differently than a sole trader. Mm. And perhaps that, that might be where that, that kind of expertise didn't get carried over. price. Yeah. You know, we, we, some right. dentists will be driven by cost, won't they? Yeah. So they'll look at it and I get my accounts done for 1,500 mm. quid mm. or I'll get them done mm. for 3,500 mm. and I'll go 1,500 quid. Yeah. Might not yeah. be a good cost. But again, it's a good one as a long throw for somebody that was either looking to buy a practice to get a good quality accountant or somebody who's selling, make sure mm, that their own accountant is, is up to the task, come sale. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And, and we have to tread very carefully with that relationship because for us, for most legal services, actually, nobody really wants to speak to their lawyer. No, you know, we're, we're, we're a distressed purchase for most things. So... <laughs> we get one shot on a sale or a purchase, whereas they've probably dealt with their accountant for the last mm. 10, mm. 15, 20 years. And it's not for us to, to destroy those relationships, but it can be very, very difficult for us to diplomatically say, you might need some more specialist mm. advice on this than you're currently getting from your accountant. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's, it's a tricky mm. one is that one. But that's where, that's where we encounter most of the See, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that. That's a yeah. real interest one. Yeah. Because that's also a message yeah. that we could get the Frank Taylor guys Absolutely, to yeah. send out and say, look, you know, you're going to have this completion statement, so make sure you get it right. Get, make sure you get it yeah. right. Really. Yeah. Well, that was great, Tom. Um, yeah, that, that was wonderful. So we've got two questions, and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to the answers to these, because um, I know you're quite passionate about a few things in your life, so I want to see what direction yeah, they're going. So, yeah, so you're a fly on the wall. You're a fly on the wall in a, in a, in a situation. Um, what yeah. situation would you like to be a fly on the wall on? Yeah, when, when, where would you be? Who would you be looking at? Yeah, so, so I, th- I had to think about that one, and most of the examples I came up with were... Um, historic obviously historic examples of things that happened in history you know where you'd like to have been there and seen other parties reacted and that sort of thing but most of the historic ones are quite depressing so um, i thought 
Well, let's let's come up with something a little bit more interesting. And what I came up with was um, I'm quite into music, and uh, through 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 the ages, I'm quite into music. And I read an article a few months back about um, one evening in 1966 when um, a group of musicians attended a club called the Bag of Nails in London. Uh, I don't know where it was, but it was somewhere in, in London. Um, and in the audience was Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Eric Clapton. Oh, my goodness. Uh, and, and a load of other In people. the audience? In the audience. And, <laughs> and they'd, they'd all gone to see this kid from America who'd come across, who they'd all heard about and heard the rumours about him. Um, and that kid was called Jimi Hendrix. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Um, and apparently at the end of the evening, Eric Clapton left in disgust and said, nobody told me he was that effing good. Oh, right. So I'd, I'd, I'd have liked to have been, uh, I'd like to have been a flower. Oh, I've never heard that story no, either. Heard that, yeah. I mean, what an audience yeah. as well. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, that would be yeah. amazing. Oh, that's a good, good answer. Good answer. Yeah. And then, then the next one is um, if you could meet somebody. So fact, fiction, you know, gone, still with us. Who would you who would you yeah. like to sit down and have a, have a glass of red wine with or yeah, dinner? It, starting point for that would always be who are my heroes really. Um, so with that one, I, I didn't really have to think about that very for very long. That would be uh, Ayrton Senna. Yeah. I knew he was um, going to say Ayrton Senna. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I had it in my thinking because I know you love uh, racing and cars and Formula One, yeah. and he was an exceptional. Yes, I think. Uh, I mean. I don't, I'm not into it as much as I used to be. Um, I mean, I grew up on it, um, 80s, 90s, to some extent in the 2000s. Um, so that was very much the era where I, I grew up on it. And I, I was at Donington Park in 93 when he passed however many cars, eight cars on the first lap in the wet and all the rest of it. Um, and he was and still is, in my opinion, the greatest of all time. Mm. And I know that discussion really does polarise opinion, particularly with all the the records that Hamilton's broken and that sort of thing. But, I think you can uh, be the greatest and not necessarily win the most yeah. uh, awards yeah. or medals. I, I think the way somebody holds themselves on, 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 on the track, uh, the way they conduct themselves, some of the individual moves that yeah. that he had. I, I, like I say, I, I don't think it's necessarily and just a title. So. I always think the cars were more competitive then, as in the fact they were more similar, yeah. as opposed yeah. to it now seems like if you've got, you know, Four hundred million dollars behind you, then yeah. you're probably going to do quite well, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully that's getting level. Yeah, yeah hopefully right, yeah. they're leveling that out yeah. this season. And I think if you look at, you've also got to look at who they were racing against as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. Hamilton has had a charmed period where he's been in the best car, and you can only beat his teammate really. Um, you look at who Senna was racing against: multiple world champions, Prost, PK, mm. Mansell. Yeah. And even and even behind them, there were some seriously good race-winning drivers as well. Yeah. There just isn't that breadth of competition now, I don't think. Um, and you're right, Andy, in terms of the statistical aspect of it. Um, you can't just do it on that. I mean, Sterling Moss would probably be in any aficionado's top few drivers of all time, and he never even won a yeah. title. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. No, that's great. Yeah. Tom, absolute pleasure. Yeah, absolute Thank pleasure. you very that much. Was a, that was a really, really Thank enjoyable you. conversation. We weaved around an awful lot, and I'm sure... I'm sure our listeners will take a lot from that, particularly on some of those kind of subtle things that they, they can be doing if they're buying and selling and put, a... And put a personal face on a solicitor. Yeah, exactly. Look, yeah. Yeah. solicitors, they're yeah. nice people. They're nice people, you know? yeah. yeah.
yeah. contrary to whatever you think yeah don't get them to think too much <laughs> six minutes <laughs> lovely yeah. that's great cheers Tom brilliant thanks very much mate. well that was an enjoyable chat with Tom it was it was it was good to I think one that solicitor thing you know everyone, everyone is scared of solicitors I think really yeah. and I think to try and put a approachable face on a solicitor uh, and I think what he said is so true. People don't like talking to him because it's going to cost them money. It's going to cost them money. But also that, it's funny, isn't it? when you kind of dig into someone's past, it gives you kind of insights to who they are and what drives them. And when he said that he drove, it was a 70-mile round trip to get to Hull for his training contract. And mm. then he somebody then had the drive and the desire to then go up and set um, set up his own legal practice. It makes you wonder there's connections between the sort of people who are prepared to go above and beyond and do something more that then also yeah, want definitely. to achieve something more as well. Well, I think uh, that 300 letters. Yeah. You know, uh, you have to you have to be persistent, don't you? We, we were sort of saying to our team, weren't we, about being relentless. Yeah. Being relentless. And that's, that's, that's a, an epitome of it. I, and I say, he's going to have to write... <laughs> Yeah. 300 letters not photocopy 300 letters not copy and paste on a yeah, word document yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it right. graft. 300 graft. letters and paste yeah. them off and then also I think the other thing with that is it's a bit like what was it Starbucks or one of those things you know your oh, rejection you've got yeah. to cope with also the fact of people yeah. saying no thanks or yeah. people not saying anything and I also thought some of the tips for buyers and sellers in terms of some of the things you can do to get ready and when you're going through the sale process, you know, stay mm. committed and trying to get your paperwork lined up in advance. I think the listeners will take a lot from that. It was a really good... I think for me, it, it goes back to preparation. You know? Yeah. Uh, these things take time, so actually spend some time before getting it all together. Yeah. yeah That's yeah. good. Very useful. That I'm going out. Yeah, it's great. Brilliant. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dentology, where we discuss the business of dentistry. If you like what you heard, please do subscribe where you found this episode. That would be amazing. And also follow us on Instagram.